This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I like to consider myself a post-bac expert and evangelist. When you're thinking about this opportunity and trying to decide if it's right for you, also think about what you want to get out of it personally. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we explore a wide variety of training opportunities to get you ready for grad school. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 181. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. I almost said happy fall, but I think we're one week away. It already feels like it. Uh, and you were just down here, Josh. We actually got to get together, which was very exciting. And as usual, <laughs> we made an event of it. I think we try and pack in every possible thing whenever you're here. It is always such a treat to come back to North Carolina and see all of our friends. And you're right, Dan. We had an action-packed night. Uh, I don't want to brag, but we escaped the... Uh, Steampunk time travel is what oh, we did. Yeah, yeah, we escaped the time travel escape room, just the two of us. And it was a room, what, it was up for uh, three to eight people, and we did it with two people. No problem. Nailed it. And then uh, dinner, and then we went to a concert, Josh, uh, some people that you knew from the university, I guess. And that was an event that takes us to our ethanol section, right? Because I haven't been to a concert uh, at a bar in a long, long time, but <laughs> it really turned into kind of a fiasco. Yeah, we walked through the door and we proclaimed, hello, my fellow kids. <laughs> was, yeah. uh, the the reason this is in the ethanol section, Josh, is because we ordered uh, an IPA. I think it was from the keg. The first one came out. We passed it down to the guy on the end. Uh, we were there with a group of people. Looked pretty good. Not a hazy, just a normal IPA. Second one came out, looked a little hazy. Third one came out, it was sludge. It was pure sludge. And then the keg was tapped and they had to go get a new one. <laughs> and it was absolutely undrinkable from my perspective. Yeah, the optical density was off the charts. Like our throats were actually it burned. burning. It burned. Yeah, yeah. So we went back to basics, Josh, and had, I think, something familiar to a lot of graduate students, which was the champagne of beers. The champagne of beers, I hope anyone out there who knows what we're talking about yells it out right now. But if you don't, then actually that's probably a good thing. But we're talking about Miller High Life. Yeah, and I was I was actually excited to talk about this because I don't remember ever having a Miller High Life. Oh, you uh, did. Even, you did. I'm, I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. But even through grad school, like we would always level up to the yingling. That was the, the fancier beer at the time. Um, I was surprised at how good it was. And I think it may have been just coming off of that really skunky IPA, but I enjoyed it. It was a tall can. It lasted for the next two, three hours for me as we watched the music, but it was a great event and I actually enjoyed the beer. So I appreciate you recommended it. So I appreciate you uh, getting me out of my comfort zone and back into the $2 cans of beer. So I do what I can. <laughs> we, next, next time we'll do PBRs. Josh, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors at Promega. I, I don't know about you, Josh. I definitely used live cells in my research when I was in grad school, and it is pivotal to understanding in vivo mechanisms and conditions. 
Uh, but cell line authentication is really key to success and reproducibility in science. I actually had problems with this as a as an undergrad, uh, where I had cell lines that were not the cell lines I thought they were. So you can learn about proper cell culture techniques, uh, answer questions like, should you be using 2D or 3D culture systems by going to promega.com slash hello cells. And the answer is probably 3D for my research, but I didn't have that technology. <laughs> I did some 3D culture towards the end of grad school. Yeah, I was inside a skeleton lab. We should have been doing 3D. We didn't. Maybe next time for me, Josh. There's still hope. Yeah, Dan, and we have a new Patreon patron. I want to say a special thank you to Nitsan for joining our growing community of Patreon patrons. Thank you so much. All right, Dan, got a great topic and great interview, so why don't we get right to it? All right, Dan, tell us about this interview you did. Yeah, I got an email from Elizabeth Thompson, and she just talked about how she had this experience doing a Fulbright scholarship, but she went to the extra mile, Josh. You know, there are some people that maybe do an, they have an experience and they really enjoy it, and they maybe tell two friends. What Elizabeth did was she wrote this document about why it's so important to do have an experience after your bachelor's degree, called a post-bac, and all of the different opportunities you have and some of her experiences in the way she applied to some of these and then having gotten the Fulbright scholarship. So I wanted to just talk with her, uh, have her explain on podcast about all of the opportunities that you have, some of the strategies she used to get a post back and why it's so valuable. So take a listen to the interview I did with Elizabeth. Well, Elizabeth yes. Thompson, welcome to Hello PhD. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And you are here because you have written a great guide for something called a post-back. And yes. hopefully our listeners have heard of this concept. Maybe they have not heard it called by that name. But can you first introduce yourself a little bit and tell us how you got to this place where you are writing a guide to post-backs? Sure. Yeah, my name is Elizabeth. I did my undergrad at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I studied genetics and genomics and did some undergraduate research on viruses, RNA viruses in particular. And I knew I was kind of interested in doing a PhD, but I wasn't really sure. There was a lot happening in the world. This is kind of like around when the COVID pandemic was, Comments. was yeah, yeah, <laughs> kind of raging. And so I was, yeah, just interested in kind of doing something different before I kind of started on my PhD. And so I decided to take like a gap year. So maybe that's a phrase that's more familiar to people. And I did a post-bac, which is just a post-baccalaureate research opportunity. And I was a Fulbright scholar, and I went to Istanbul, Turkey, and studied coral reef viruses and coral microbe communities. And then I wrote this guide, which I hope is helpful to people about the world of post-bacs. I, I don't want this, this to be glossed over. You said Fulbright scholar. And so this is a very rare opportunity, <laughs> pretty incredible. But I think... Through your process, you explored a lot of different post-back opportunities. And so we're going to talk about some of that. And then we're going to come back to your Fulbright, I hope, to talk about some of that experience. But for somebody listening who who is not familiar with this term post-back, it's, it's short for post-baccalaureate. It means after you've graduated mm -hmm. from undergrad. And I know that on Hello PhD, we talk about a lot you almost need to do one of these experiences. This is my opinion. I think Josh probably shares his opinion that going right from undergrad to graduate school is really difficult these days in the STEM fields because you're expected to have a lot of research experience. So can you talk a little bit about 
Um, some of the, the opportunities that a post back entails, what are some of the things you can do? Yeah, that's a great point. I do think that it's becoming a lot more common to do a post back before going to grad school. I think a post back, I mean, the kind of the the appeal is that you can do a little bit of whatever you want to do. And so I think for most people who are interested in research careers, that's something related to, to research. You could also pursue like further education, anything kind of in that realm. But I think it's just a really good opportunity to kind of, as you said, familiarize yourself more with research. I know for myself, I worked in a lab during undergrad for the entirety of the time I was there. I started my first semester. and. Wow. Even though that was, yeah, it was great. I really enjoyed it and I felt like it prepared me, but it was nothing compared to like actually working and like doing my own kind of research. And so I think it was a really valuable opportunity and I feel a lot more prepared for grad school kind of having done that. And you did that in the same lab, right? You you worked in the lab as, as a freshman all the way through graduation. Yeah. But then I think you wrote that having worked three and a half years, I still became more fluent and comfortable in the lab after working full time. There was a change. There's a difference between doing it as an employee oh, yeah. versus a student. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I worked in the same lab for, for about four years. So I did that three and a half years as an undergrad, including kind of two-ish summers, but it's a little weird because of COVID. And then I, I graduated in December. And so I kind of had about a half a year to do some uh, full-time work before I left for Turkey. And so I kept working full-time in that same lab. And yeah, I mean, it was, there's a, a, just a very big difference from 15 to 20 hours a week to like 40 hours a week. And in my case, it was a little bit more kind of because we were doing COVID stuff. So yeah, it was kind of like out of the frying pan into the fire sort of situation. So the, the post-pack is a good way to get additional life experience. I think you talk about this, that it's a good way to get research experience on on maybe trying out fields that you have never tried before. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, for me, I, I've known for quite some time that I was interested in, in RNA viruses, and that's still what I want to do in grad school. And I did my postdoc on something related to viruses, but a completely different system, something that I'll probably like never touch again. And I, I can't think of another time in my scientific career where I will have the freedom to do that. So I think it's kind of a really unique time that that space between your undergrad and grad programs where you have a little bit of freedom to explore and play and yeah, just like become a person. I feel like you, you graduate undergrad at 21 or 22 and maybe like making such a huge decision in terms of what you want to pursue in grad school and where you want to go would just be better made if you had another year or two of kind of life under your belt. There is a real compulsion, though, to go fast, right? I think the desire, as you put it, to be done before you're 30 is real. And so can you talk about that balance, about the feeling of, I want to get through this PhD, I need to go right away, versus pausing a moment to take that post-bac experience, to take those years in between? So my post back was only one year. So that isn't really, it sounds maybe like a lot of time, but it's definitely not a lot of time. I know people at my institution who took two years to do a post back. I'm sure that there are people who take longer. And it does, yeah, there is kind of this desire to, yeah, graduate before you're 30. I think particularly if you're interested in an academic track where you kind of need to do then a postdoc and then you're applying to faculty positions and you kind of want to do that and kind of get started early on that. I guess I would just go back to saying that it's, it's kind of an opportunity cost. And I think that there is 
really no other point in your life where you'll be able to do this again, at least for most people. And so you might lose out a little bit on, you might graduate a little bit later, but I think you're gaining a lot more. And I think it's becoming a lot more common for people to do postbacs. So I don't think that you really have to worry about, you know, being behind or anything like that. People in your cohort will probably be coming from very different backgrounds. And so it's, yeah, it's not important if you're the youngest person there or the oldest person there. Yeah, I think the real risk that that people don't assess with with <laughs> the full depth of how bad it can be is ending up in a graduate program, a six-year graduate program, and hating it, right? And so yeah. taking this time in between to really be sure of the program, the institution, the type of research you want to do, the type of researcher you want to be or educator or whatever it is, knowing all those things going in and avoiding a six-year uh, prison term, <laughs> what it turns out to be, is is hugely worth the investment, I think. Tell me a little bit about the types of post-bac experiences. I, you break them down into research or education. Can you talk a little bit about what those two paths look like in your view? Sure. I think there's definitely some overlap, but I would say research is kind of what it sounds like, right? You're doing research. Maybe you have the opportunity to kind of create your own project or you're working as a tech in another lab or, or something like that. There are also different programs like the NIH has a postback program, things like that. Whereas I would say an educational program is something that focuses more on like education in the form of coursework because certainly research is education as well but but coursework I think is really the the difference between the two so my Fulbright experience had no coursework I didn't take any courses and so when I was considering my opportunities I also thought about doing like an MPH because that might be valuable for for my future career and that would have been all classes essentially yeah do you recommend that people consider a master's degree in between I know that's an opportunity that people have yeah, I think it really depends. Honestly, I think for most people, it's probably not the best choice. I think that... Specifically in the STEM fields, I think we're talking. It'd be different yeah. maybe in humanities, but in the STEM fields. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. You're you're totally fine. Yeah, I think that that's that's correct. So I think the, the biggest thing to consider is probably just that if you are going to go to an institution in the U.S. and do some sort of master's program, you will most likely be paying for it. And the tuition, of course, can vary, but I, I, I would not say that not it would cheap. be like a light investment. Yeah, yeah. And so there are a variety of ways to kind of get around that. There are some really interesting scholarship opportunities to do master's programs abroad. The Fulbright has a master's program kind of component to it, as well as some other kind of like a Rhodes scholarship or a Marshall scholarship. Those ones maybe people are familiar with. Yeah. So So if you can get that scholarship, it may be worth pursuing, but without it, it's going to be a huge time and money investment. Yeah, certainly. So I think if you can get someone to pay for it, and you think that it would be helpful to you, then consider it for sure. But in my opinion, it's not worth it if you have to pay for it. Unless maybe your ambitions change later on in undergrad and you like graduated with a degree in history and now you're like, oh, I really want to do molecular biology and you kind of need some some scientific coursework to to get up to speed. That would be maybe the only exception that I can think of. You have a specific warning sort of against the non-thesis master's program. Can you talk about what a thesis master's versus non-thesis master's is and why somebody in the STEM fields might want to focus on one? 
Sure. So a thesis master's is just a master's program in which you are required to complete a research project and then write a thesis about that project. And a non-thesis master's is a master's program where you don't have to do that. Just coursework. And I think, yeah, yeah, just coursework. And so a lot of, I'm just familiar with MPHs, which is a a master's in public health. A lot of those tend to be non-thesis master's programs. And the reason that I would say to just be especially cautious of those is that for, for most of us, if we're going to get a PhD, we're interested in a career in research. And I think that your research skills are what you really need to demonstrate to admissions committees and prospective mentors. And doing a non-thesis master's does not do anything to improve your research skills, and it doesn't demonstrate any sort of experience in the lab. And so I think for most people, a research master's would be the better choice. Yeah, I think that's right. I think admissions committees are looking for that research experience because that's what you're going to be doing day to day in graduate school. And so lovely coursework you've done, but do we know that you're going to be able to get through five years of working in a lab? And that's what they're looking for. Also having those letters of recommendation from a research advisor, hugely, hugely important. So you definitely want to have an experience that will get you to that letter of recommendation. Definitely. There are all sorts of other benefits and, and they're subtle. They're subtle to um, applying for one of these scholarships or doing a research-based postback. One of them you talk about is, let's say you apply for one of these scholarships or grants. You talk about how that demonstrates your ability to apply for and get grants. And, and why is that important? Yeah, well, I think a large a large part of science is not just doing the science or, or engineering or mathematics or whatever, but securing the funding that will allow you to do that work. And so I think particularly for people at earlier stages in their academic career, that's not really something that they have the ability to practice, right? Like maybe you have undergraduate research awards at your institution, and those are great. And I think that's definitely one way to demonstrate that you can write persuasively about why your research is important. But doing that at a more competitive and national level is a lot more impressive. Absolutely. I think if I had reapplied after having a Fulbright scholarship on my CV, I would have done better in my interviews and such. Yeah, that makes it makes a lot of sense. I think it's just this CV booster. And the moment somebody sees Fulbright, they, true or not about the individual human, they immediately understand something about what that scholarship meant or what that fellowship meant. So it's, it's going to definitely help you. There's there's no harm in having one of yeah, these funding there's some, opportunities. There's some name recognition. You talk a little bit about how having one of these experiences may not necessarily get you to clarity. So for the person who is applying to graduate school, maybe they're not exactly sure what they want to study. It does help them to have some experiences. But there's value even in eliminating options, right? There's Mm -hmm. value in eliminating institutions. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I I think that when we're thinking about, at least for me, when I was thinking about where I wanted to go to grad school and and what I wanted to do, I was lucky because I already had pretty honed research interests. But I think that for me, even like figuring out what I didn't want to do was very helpful. And so I think if you're interested in in pursuing a PhD, but you kind of have a lot of general interests, or you're just really not sure there, you could be pulled a lot of different ways. I think having the time to pursue one of those avenues in a kind of robust way for a longer term, maybe half a year, a year, even more than a year, that gives you a really good sense of whether or not you could do that 
for your PhD or, or potentially for the rest of your career, if that's what you decide you want to do. And so if you find that, that's excellent. But if you don't find that, if you find out this is not what I want to do, that's still one thing that you've eliminated. And I think that that's not, that's not something to be upset about. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Taking options off the table lowers your <laughs> mental overhead of, of the, all of the ideas you have to bounce around. I think it's also helpful that you have the opportunity to go somewhere else. You went to Turkey. Somebody yes. could try studying on the West Coast or they could try studying in Michigan or different parts of the country or different parts of the world and find out, oh, I love this. I want to definitely focus my attention on universities in this specific region or I never want to be this cold again. I can't study in Madison. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I think it's I think that's probably one thing I didn't consider as much when I was thinking about an institution is I didn't give myself enough freedom to think like, do I really want to live in this place? And I, I'm happy with my choice and I, I think I'll be happy in Atlanta. But it also is one thing to consider. You're going to be there for a while. So if you hate it, that probably is not not the right place for you. Absolutely. Well, I, I want to hear a little bit about the application process, specifically for the the application you did for the Fulbright, but I know you also applied for some other fellowships and scholarships. And I'd like you to walk us through that because I have no sense for what is involved in applying for or getting one of these things. And as I read your description, I learned a lot of resources that I just had no idea existed. So could you walk us through your process, the the applications you were writing, and how you ended up being in Turkey? Sure. So I had been looking for, for different postdoc opportunities, and I knew I wanted to do some research, and I was interested in going abroad. And so for me, the Fulbright was a really good option for that. So the Fulbright... It's kind of an interesting program. So there are a couple different options for what you can do when you're at this stage in your career. You can apply for master's or PhD programs abroad. Um, so I know a couple of people who are doing their master's in Turkey. You can apply with the research projects. That was what I did. And you can apply to do English teaching abroad. And I know some people who are doing that as well. So I think for for our purposes, probably the one that people are most interested in is that research application. And so what that looked like for me is I had to first identify a faculty member at an institution who would be willing to kind of take me in and house me and and give me some institutional resources. And you had to identify somebody in a different country from where you were living? Yeah, yeah. So that I think is the, the really intimidating part about of that application. Yeah, so I was I was really lucky to to find my mentor. He's really excellent and I found him because I was I was actually I had reached out to a scientist at a nonprofit cuz I was hoping she would hire me, but I right. also had seen from her, yeah, from her background that she had been a Fulbright scholar. So I was like, "Oh, I'm like hoping that she's going to hire me, but like, I'm going to ask her about this because it was kind of an opportunity I've been considering. And she was just really, really supportive of that choice. And she was like, I think it would be a great opportunity. Here's some people I know kind of working in this area that you could reach out to. And so I was really lucky to have found that. But I think if this is something you're interested in, uh, consult with your mentors and see if they know people in in different places kind of doing research that you're interested in. Probably expect to be sending a lot of cold emails and just waiting for a response. And so I found a faculty member. For me, that was Dr. Rashid Bilgin. He's at Boğaziçi University in Istanbul, Turkey. And so we kind of collaborated on figuring out a research project. And then I wrote a two-page research proposal on that project. 
So that was part of my application. You started with the advisor and worked together to come up with a proposal. This wasn't like Elizabeth writes a proposal and then goes and shops it around trying to find somebody who will let her try it out. Yeah, so that wasn't my experience. I don't know if if people do that. Perhaps that's an option. But I think at least for, for me, being in the biological sciences, I kind of needed to know what resources were going to be available. To oh, I think me it makes total to, sense. I, I hadn't yeah, thought through the, this is why I'm asking. I hadn't thought through the process. And in my, as I read, you had a personal statement and a two page research proposal and found a mentor. I didn't think about the order of operations there. And I think it's helpful yeah, to say, yeah. okay, this would be much, a much stronger research proposal if I have a mentor identified who is willing to work with me. Yep. Yeah. So, so we worked together. He kind of gave me, um, the experimental setup and equipment that was available to me. And then I kind of, he gave me the freedom to run with that. So I put something together, sent it back to him. We went back and forth a little bit. And then that was my proposal. And then I wrote a one page personal statement just on my motivations for applying and that kind of stuff. And then I think there were three letters of recommendation. So that was my total application package, plus some kind of biographical stuff and forms and those sorts of things. So that was the application for the Fulbright. I actually decided not to apply to any other post-bac programs just because I wasn't, it was a very yeah uncertain time in the world. So this was in 2021, there was just a lot happening and I, I wasn't yet certain that I wanted to take time off. I was really going back and forth. And so I said, well, I'll apply to this program. This is a good opportunity. Seems like a good fit for me. If this is an option, then great. And if it's not, then then I'll then I'll go to grad school. Yeah. And and applying to graduate school concurrently, there's no guarantee you're going to get into a program that you want to get into necessarily. So it was really a, a juggling act at that phase. Yeah, definitely. It was it was a lot of yeah, there were a lot of applications. I was also applying to like graduate school fellowships, so I applied to an NSF GRFP and those guys. So it was a it was a busy summer and fall in terms of writing. I think it could be a good option for some people. I, I by that I mean applying concurrently to to post and doctoral research opportunities just because you're kind of covering all of your bases. Maybe you're really interested in going abroad and you really want to do a Fulbright and then you have like a family emergency or a personal health emergency and you, that's just like not an option for you right. anymore. It's kind of nice to have a variety of options that you might be able to pursue. But applying to grad school is also really expensive, which isn't something yes, that is. I think I knew before. And so if you're if you're pretty certain that you want to take time, it might, yeah, just depending on your financial situation, it might be better to apply during your post because that also gives you, then you can put it on your CV. You maybe have another letter of recommendation and you're only applying once potentially versus twice. There was an additional piece of this Fulbright, Fulbright application that I was not aware of. You mentioned working with a scholarship coordinator at the university and how the university may have to endorse you. Can you talk a little bit about, this is not just I'm going to email some form somewhere and now I'm applied. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I'm not sure how common this is at other universities. I kind of did a little digging and it seems to be not uncommon at least, but my undergrad institution, UW Madison has a scholarships office and they also have an international um, education coordinator. I don't know if that's the exact title, but so he was the person, he is the person at that university who kind of manages endorsing all sorts of applications for different post-bac experiences. So he was kind of responsible for my Fulbright, 
I believe he's also responsible for if you want to apply for like a Churchill or Rhodes, those kinds of things. And so what he did, he's he's really there to help you. And, and a similar person at whatever whatever institution any anyone at is at is there to help you. And so he gave me advice on my application. He read my application materials. And then when he he was convinced that, that that they were good. And so he endorsed my application. So then my application, I applied via my university. For the Fulbright, you can also apply what's called at large. So that's just you submitting an application kind of just by yourself, but you can also be endorsed by an institution. And yeah, so that's what we did. That must carry more weight. No? Yeah, I, I'm not sure, to be honest. I think even if it doesn't affect the application at all, it's still really helpful because you have another set of person who is like, this. his job is reviewing these applications. You're and not so the first Fulbright scholarship application he's read. Yeah. Yes, yes. So he was he was able to provide some really good advice. And it, also another, another factor is that the deadline for applying with your institution is often earlier than the deadline for applying at large, which is kind of is a double-edged sword. For me, it meant that I kind of had to fi- finish my application sooner, and then that gave me more time to kind of do do other things. But it's also one thing to consider. Um, if you miss your institution's deadline, you can still apply at large. But unfortunately, the kind of review process for the Fulbright is a black box. I'm not really sure what happens when they get them. They just take a few months and then get back to you. So, And is it purely paper-based? There's no interview portion. They don't call you to see if you can string sentences together or anything like that. It's just, I sent my application. It differs by country. Okay. Yeah, it differs by country. So for, and and institution, depending on if you're applying through your, your institution. So my university rep and I had an interview that was just so that he could, there's a section in the application if you're applying for an institution for them to write an endorsement. So we had a kind of more informal interview so that he knew a little bit more about me and my interests and could, could write something that was good for that section. Um, so as far as I understand it for the Fulbright, the first round of applications are reviewed by the Institute of International Education, which is housed in the U.S. State Department. And then if you get past that, you're a semifinalist. And then after you're a semifinalist, the applications are sent to whatever country you applied to go to. So you do have to apply to a specific country. So I applied to go to Turkey. And so all of the semifinalist applications that went to Turkey went to the Turkish Fulbright Board. And then they have the freedom to make their own choices. Sometimes some countries will do interviews, some don't. So I didn't have to do an interview. I know other people who did, and I think it can vary by country, by time. Maybe they used to do one and they don't, they do now. But that's another thing that your, your institutional scholarship coordinator might know. So I asked the one at UW-Madison, he was like, yeah, I I don't think you have to do an interview for Turkey. Our, Our other applicants in the past haven't had to do that. So they're a good source of knowledge for those things. Is there any strategy in, I know you chose the research that you were interested in and the advisor happened to be studying in Turkey. Is there any strategy in where you apply, which country you choose? Because I can imagine everybody wants to do research in the French Riviera, but does that make it harder to get that research position in the French Riviera? Yes, definitely. There is definitely some kind of strategic decision making that can be done with your application, at least for Fulbright. So yeah, you've kind of correctly identified, I think, the trend, which is that a lot of people want to go to very nice regions of the world. And partic- for, for Americans, a lot of times that happens to be Western Europe. And so you're going to see 
you're going to have more competition if you're applying to go to the UK or to France or to Germany than if you would like to go to other places who perhaps don't have as many applicants but are still looking to have people come. And so, yeah, you're kind of correct. My choice wasn't really based off of that, but I did know that it was a factor. Yeah, I think I would just I'm encouraging people to look more broadly to expand your geography and maybe look for experiences that are not the first four countries you think of. And, yes, and maybe there's, there's more chance for you to get this opportunity. Yeah. And I think too, um, from, from the state department's point of view, the state department does not care about my, my research project. They're not interested in it at all. The reason that they fund the program is because it's really a cultural exchange program. And so I would just encourage people when you're thinking about this opportunity and trying to decide if it's right for you, also think about what you want to get out of it personally. For me, I knew that I was interested in going to a part of the world that I might not otherwise have chosen. And it just happened to work out really well that I have found a great mentor in a country that I had never really thought that much about before. I know that there's another Fulbright scholar I know who is in Southern Africa, and I don't think that he ever would have thought about going there in, unless he had really thought about what he wanted to do and a good place in the world to do that. And then what did he want to gain personally? So yeah, I would encourage people to look outside of Canada, Mexico, and Western Europe. Yeah, it's an amazing opportunity. I want to ask you just briefly, you talk about the NSF's GRFP a few times, mm -hmm. and you also give the advice that you should apply for it multiple years in a row. Can you talk about what it is and what it offers and, and how the application process works? Yeah, so the NSF GRFP is the National Science Foundation's Graduate Research Fellowship Program. I think I said that in the right order. And it is a fellowship for graduate students who do any kind of work that is funded by the NSF, NAT, like in general. So if you're interested in doing research that could plausibly be funded by the NSF, then pretty much you're eligible. And there are some, you have to be a U.S. citizen and things like that. And it is a really, really great fellowship opportunity for prospective graduate students. I know so many people who have applied. I know at my current graduate institution, it's pretty normal for everyone to apply. I think I applied. Year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a long time ago, um, so but I'm pretty sure I did. <laughs> so it's a, it's a great opportunity. And the reason I think that it's it's kind of, again, there's a strategic element here is that the rules for the GRFP are that you can only apply during your first two years of graduate school once. So once you start the clock on your graduate school, during your first or second years, you can apply one time. So for me, I'm pretty sure I'm going to apply this year. I would not be eligible to reapply my second year. But before you start graduate school, you can apply as many times as you want. And so I applied my senior year of undergrad. That doesn't count towards any kind of, there's no counter right. that's ticking away the number of times I can apply. And so if you take a postback, you have another year, maybe two, to apply for this really prestigious fellowship that also carries a significant amount of, of money with it and prestige. And any so lab would be glad kind of to have you if you're self-funded. Yes, definitely. And there's, there's, yeah, you have more flexibility when you're carrying your own money with you. And this is a portable grant. So, so the NSF is funding you, not your institution wow. or your prospective institution. It's your money. And again, that's something that not a lot of people can get at this point in time in their career. And so, yeah, I kind of, I didn't apply again during my fellowship year because I just didn't think about it. Honestly, there was a lot going on, Slightly busy. but 
<laughs> if you're more organized than me, I think it could be another time to apply again. And then it just kind of increases your chances of yeah of getting an award. Well, and I love that about your approach. You know that these are competitive awards. And yet you applied for them anyway. And a few times in your document, you say, just try it, just try it, believe in yourself, just try it. Is, is there an element of, of almost you couldn't believe that you had this opportunity? It's just such a, an amazing lightning bolt of, of a chance to go study abroad and do this. But I think most of us talk ourselves out of even trying. Yeah, definitely. And I I also almost talked myself out of applying many times because I, I think it's unfortunate that when we think about programs that sort of have this prestige around them, you're a Rhodes Scholar or something like that, that, yeah, that name almost makes you feel like you can't apply for it because you're like, well, oh, I'm not a, I'm I'm not not a Rhodes Scholar. scholar. Like, I'm not cut out to be a Rhodes Scholar. Yeah, whatever. And I would just submit that probably many people who were themselves four white scholars, were themselves Rhodes Scholars, et cetera, et cetera, also felt that way. And the reason that they have what they have is because they applied for it. And so, yeah, I could have never gotten my Fulbright scholarship if I didn't apply for it. And even though when I sent it in, I was kind of like, oh, this is not, this is, this is a long shot. I still did it because the the other option was just to do nothing and not have the opportunity. And so I think as far as it is within your ability to apply broadly and apply widely, do it. Because either you apply and you don't get it, or you apply and you get it. And right. there's that possibility that is there if you apply that is never there if you don't apply. And the commitment is the time to have written the applications. You talk about how you can probably reuse certain paragraphs, change things, have your letters of recommendation authors, have them prepared to customize, but to reuse some of the same language if they need to. So there are economies of scale here that I think people can eke out. Yes, definitely. So let's finish with... You were standing at the crossroads. You had actually gotten into Emory and had kind of forgotten about this Fulbright thing. And then did the email come across your inbox or how did you find out? Yeah, so I had submitted my Fulbright application and pretty much forgot about it. And then I applied to grad school, got my interviews, did my interviews, got accepted to Emory and then basically made my choice and decided to to go to Emory, ordered myself an Emory sweatshirt. I was really excited. I was looking at apartments in Atlanta. And then on a random, I think it was a Wednesday, I got an email from the State Department that was like, you have a notification and checked it. And I was like, oh, okay. So all of this planning that I've been doing is is maybe no longer valid. Yeah. So so for me, I was very conflicted. There was a life ahead of me already, basically. I had already kind of thought about like, who I wanted to work with at Emory. For me, Emory is close to home. So it was going home for the first time in in a couple of years. And yeah, I think I had just, I had settled into that. And so thinking about moving across the world and and doing something completely different in a place that I didn't know, with people that I didn't know, speaking a language I didn't know was really terrifying, to be honest. And so it took a lot of, yeah, it, it took a lot of convincing and cajoling from many people in my life to convince me that it was that I should that I should do the Fulbright, that it was the best opportunity for me. And I'm really glad that I did. And particularly important for me was advice that I got from a professor who had written a letter of recommendation for my Fulbright. And I really admire him. I think his research is super interesting. He was a great professor. Yeah, he's just someone that I that I look up to a lot scientifically. And he is someone who did his undergrad and then his PhD and then his postdoc, and now he's a faculty member. And we were corresponding, and he was basically like, 
I wish I had had this opportunity. Like I wish I had taken this time. And so to hear him say that kind of made me realize that this was not something that I would be able to do again in all likelihood. And so, yeah, I decided to go and I'm really happy that I did. Yeah. You, you quote him as saying, it's not a race and grad school will always be an option, but the Fulbright won't. And I think that puts it in pretty yeah. stark relief. You will always be able to, you could be 55 and apply to graduate school and go. But this Fulbright scholarship is such a rare opportunity. And I'm, and I'm so glad you did it. It sounds like it was an amazing experience. Was it six months, you said? No, so it was nine months. Oh, nine. So it's an academic year. Yep. And did you ha- spend enough time? Could you learn the language? Did you experience the culture? Or were you just in lab the entire time? No, I was I was really lucky that I was not not in lab all the time. Yeah, so I really enjoyed my time living in Turkey. My Turkish isn't great, but it's enough to get around. It's better than my Turkish, and, I can guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was it was just really a great experience. I can't yeah, really put it another way other than just to say that yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was 23 at the time and just got to go live in another country and and do research that I thought was cool but that there was no pressure to succeed in and experience another place and get to know other people that are now really important to me. So yeah, it was a, it was a really, really great time in my life. How did Emory handle the news that you were going? Did, were they okay yeah. with that? Or were they said, sorry, reapply next year? They were okay with it. So I reached out to my program manager and I said, Hey, I think I'm going to take this opportunity. What do you think? And he communicated with the Emory, I don't know, higher ups, whatever. And they came back and they were like, yeah, sure, you can defer your admission for one year. And they were actually really nice. So because, again, COVID, the Fulbright Commission was not actually sure whether or not they would send people. So they'd accepted me, but there was still kind of some uncertainty as to whether I would be able to go. And Emory was nice enough to give me a really kind of generous time frame for for deciding. So I was able to make the choice to defer my admission for a year up to, I mean, just weeks before I otherwise would have wow. had to start classes. And so that was really helpful. And I would suspect that that would be true for most people. If you are if you apply for a Fulbright and you apply to grad school and you want to defer to take the Fulbright, I do not think that they will have yeah. any issues. They're not going to complain that. about Fulbright scholars deferring a year. They would still like to have yeah. you in the program. I mean, that's that's wonderful. You, you just started, you said classes started yesterday. So I appreciate you taking the time how can people find you if they have questions or how can they find your guide to postbacks? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Liz Somson. It's L I Z S O M S E N. And that's my, I'm not very active on Twitter, but you can find me there and I would be more than happy to answer any questions via DM about my experience or applications or anything like that. I really, I really would encourage people to to take the the postback route. And so I'm like motivated to, to help That's you do great. that. So, so do feel free to reach out to me and you can find my actual written guide on GitHub. And that is linked in my Twitter. So probably the best way to navigate is via, via Twitter. That's great. And we will put that link in our show notes as well. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time out of, I know your very busy day to talk with us today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Dan, that was a fantastic interview. Uh, thank you for, for chatting with Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you so much for, uh, for being on the show and going above and beyond just having that really great experience for your career, but sharing all this information with other people. And I will say, Dan, I like to consider myself 
a postback expert and evangelist. Well, you ran a postback program for many years, Josh. I did. I did. I don't think it's purely just my own uh, narcissism, but yes, as listeners of the show might recall if you've listened for a while, uh, previously I ran a postback program for about 12 years. And so have a lot of experience working with postback students, uh, talking to undergrads who are possibly interested in doing a postback, and I've seen firsthand and up close the benefits that a postback can have on a student's trajectory and career once you make the leap into grad school. So um, it can be transformative, can it? Absolutely, absolutely, and you know it can be. It can be really surprising. You see this time and time again. Elizabeth was talking about. For her, it was a one-year experience, and a lot of these programs are just one year, maybe maybe two years sometimes. But Dan, it can be amazing how much uh, personal and professional growth can occur in that short period of time. Because what I love about a postback is, unlike when you're an undergrad, you know, Dan, I don't know if you remember being an undergrad, but you have so many things coming at you all the time, you know, especially as you get towards the end. And if you're like Elizabeth was and a lot of our listeners who are undergrads or who remember being undergrads, you know, you were probably taking your full load of classes and then you're trying to get that research experience on the side. Maybe you've got 20 hours of research you're trying to do. And then you've got friends and you're doing clubs and maybe you're working a job to help yourself get through school that's not the same as your research you've never actually had a chance to really experience what grad school is like where you really have the time to just focus on research without all those other distractions. And I think a post-bac gives you that really unique opportunity to just take a breath and experience like, okay, this is what focusing on research full-time is actually like. It lets you try on the costume to, to kind of cosplay at doing research. Actually, it lets you do real research. I want to take that back. It's not cosplay. It lets you do real research. But the thing that's different about uh, the post back in grad school is you don't have the weight of the f- next six years hanging over you because it's a, a finite time period. You get to do the research without thinking, well, if I leave after a year, I'm not going to get anything out of this. There's, there's so much psychological baggage that the graduate program puts on you um, that I think it's sometimes it can cloud your love of research. And so having that experience lets you know, oh, I really do like this. I had this experience. I did it every day for eight hours a day, and I enjoyed it. So maybe some of the other negative emotions I might get if I get into graduate school may not be related to what I actually, you know, I have identified as my career path. That's a great point, Dan. Actually, <laughs> what what you were saying reminds me a little bit about one of the things I really enjoyed about working with postback students was that in that one year time frame, they were postbacks making that transition from undergrad to grad school. They weren't cynical yet. <laughs> they were truly excited to wow. do research, uh, to be able to focus on research full time, to work in the lab uh, before a lot of that like you called it, <laughs> grad school baggage. And just time, you know, uh, sort of drags you down. And I've even seen, Dan, you know, not to take this in a negative direction, but I think another advantage or difference in a post back than grad school is, yeah, you have an advisor, you're working in a lab similar to grad school, but Dan, you you probably felt differently about your advisor by year five than you did in year one, the end of year one. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right? Yep. So, yeah, it is kind of like you have the, you get to experience the whole honeymoon phase uh, before you get on each other's nerves, right? You get to move on. Yeah. And I loved, I learned so much. I think you could probably hear it in the interview. I learned so much from Elizabeth because 
I never applied for a Fulbright or a Rhodes or any of these scholarships, and I had no idea what the mechanics were. And there really are strategies to it. There are really people who are experts at it. And having some of those resources up front, I think it makes it feel more accessible to me. If I want to apply for a Fulbright scholarship, now I know at least some people to talk to, and I know a little bit about what to expect. And I also know that it is possible. You know, Elizabeth is a bright student. She works hard, but it's not as if, you know, I could, I could speak to her and understand words she was saying. It's not as if she was this higher dimensional being <laughs> that doesn't talk to humans, right? Like she's, she's a normal person who just works hard and has learned a lot in her studies. So I feel like this is more accessible talking to a real person who has been through that process. Yeah, absolutely. And as I was hearing about her experience, you know, Fulbrights have been around for a long time. I didn't know anything about those when I was at that stage. I'd probably heard those words before, but I would have considered it would have been just as easy to fly to Mars than to apply for a Fulbright That is exactly <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Um, so again, that's why I think it's so great um, that Elizabeth's taken this time just to make this information accessible to other people who might be listening. So yeah, that does sound like an opportunity that would be interesting for me as well. And I hope, Dan, that a year or two from now, somebody writes into us and says, hey, you know what? I did a Fulbright. I had a really great Fulbright experience because I listened to that interview on Hello PhD. <laughs> That'd be awesome. We'll, we'll pass their information along to Elizabeth. Um, Dan, you know, one other thing I wanted to say and I feel like this comes up a lot with us anytime we're talking about pre-graduate school and, and you know, making yourself more competitive or attractive to graduate school uh, admissions committees. Um, I, I was glad to hear you and Elizabeth talk about it as well, is just that importance of taking that time to decide if research is what you want to actually do before you take the plunge and you jump into graduate school. But the other thing that, that Elizabeth said that I think is key is I've seen people who come out of undergrad, they know they need some more experience. They want to get more experience to figure this stuff out. It can be confusing if you don't have the right guidance or the right information to know, well, should I do a master's degree or should I apply for a Fulbright or should I go to the yeah. NIH and do a post-bac program Ten roads diverged in a wood. <laughs> I had to choose among the ten, right? Yeah, and, and actually I have I've seen people pursue paths based on what they thought would be the best for them, but really it wasn't. And they ended up spending more time and some in some cases a lot of money to do something that actually yeah. was less beneficial. So for example, and Elizabeth mentioned this too, a master's degree. Um so master's degree can be okay. If it's going to give you research experience, it's like Elizabeth was saying, these thesis-based master's programs. But a lot of these master's programs that are more coursework-based, not only do they not help you get into grad school, but those are usually the ones you have to pay for. And so I've actually encountered students who spent two years, paid money out of their own pocket, and we know education, doing your undergrad is expensive, right? And you're no closer to being competitive for graduate school than you were before. But I think what's great about some of these opportunities are most of them are paid opportunities, the ones that actually are the best bang for the buck for helping you figure out if you like research and if you want to be competitive for grad school. A lot of the programs that Elizabeth was talking about, whether it's the NIH postback program, the Fulbright Fellowship, obviously some of these research-based postback opportunities 
are paid. So it's kind of like a job. So instead of paying money <laughs> to get them, it's like you're working, you're making some income, and you're making yourself more marketable for graduate school. But I want to say there's another option. Maybe you're somewhere that you don't have access or you you can't necessarily find your way into one of these organized post-bac programs or fellowship programs. I mean, another option for your gap year, if you want to call it that, is just to find a technician job in a lab. Um, in a lot of ways, that's really similar to what you would do day in and day out for some of these programs. Uh, but reach out to faculty. Uh, let them know you're interested in getting more research experience for graduate school. And you can actually just work in a lab for a year or two. I think that's great advice. You'll still draw a salary. You'll still have experience. I think it's important if you do go that tech route, and I think we talked about this in a mailbag episode not too long ago, you need to make sure that the lab you join recognizes that you are trying to get experience for graduate school, that you're not just there as kind of, this is my career to be a lab tech, and I want to kind of prepare reagents for the rest of my time. Um, What you want to do is find a lab that's going to support you as you begin to do experiments, as you learn the ropes, you're given more and more responsibility. And some labs will have that as an opportunity. And some labs really just need somebody to maybe mix up reagents. And it's probably good to have that conversation going in so that the person who hires you knows what your career goal is. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And you definitely do want to have that conversation with a potential PI who you would work with in a technician capacity. Chances are any faculty member who's employing a technician, there's going to be a little bit of that lab maintenance work, like maybe you're maintaining a house colony, you're making reagents. Um, Certainly that's an important reason that labs hire techs in the first place. But I think what you're listening for, what you want to talk about, is that beyond that, you're also going to have the ability to have your own project, work on your own project, similar to what you would probably get if you were in one of these post-bac programs, because that's really the experience that's going to help you grow as a researcher to be... uh, to hit the ground running when you get to grad school, but also to be be more competitive when you apply. Makes total sense to me. Did you apply for the NSF's GRFP? I think I did. I did not apply. Because uh, again, Dan, I really didn't know about You're any of slacker, this stuff. You're slacker, Josh. I didn't even know about any of this stuff. Uh, I didn't apply for anything, Dan. Undergrad, grad school, I was horrible. Although you could argue my, my PI never forced me to, so I guess that was a... Yeah, I don't think it was my idea. I think my, my PI said, hey, apply for this. In case you get it, it's going to be good. I think I, I think we lived in those glory days right after the NIH budget doubling when there was so much money <laughs> for labs. That's fair. Every PI had two R01s, and so they didn't have to force their students to apply for fellowships. Um, but I tell you, Dan, I, do, I did, in my work with the postback program, worked with many students each year who were applying to the NSF GRFP. So I'm very familiar with it. The one thing I will add about the NSF GRFP, having worked with students who applied for the last 10 or 12 years, is do keep an eye on the eligibility requirements because one thing I've noticed is they seem to change year in and year out. So if you're an undergraduate, you should be fine applying and you may be able to apply as many times as you want. I don't know. However, you can apply for the NSF GRFP once you are a graduate student, but that's where the rules change year in and year out. So I actually pulled up, Dan, right before we started recording the NSF GRFP website just to see what the rules are currently. And I think this is fairly typical. So if you are a graduate student in one of the scientific fields GRFP supports, 
you can apply if you have completed no more than one year of full-time graduate study. And you can apply okay. one time as a graduate student in either your first or second year of grad school. And I think that's important to note. So people listening in 2025, just know that you should go read the rules. Um, the advice that you heard today As may have been accurate today, at that time. September 2022. Yeah. And if you're listening in 2035 or 2052, something has gone terribly wrong. There should be better technology than podcasts, <laughs> and you shouldn't listen to idiots like us. I hope we're all still here, Dan. <laughs> well, I don't know if we'll still be podcasting about grad school in 2052, Josh. Hopefully, we're still on the on the planet. Welcome to episode 748. <laughs> I look forward to it, Josh. Well, Dan, this was uh, this was really great. I hope this was helpful to uh, folks who are thinking about getting experience between undergrad and grad school. Um, and again, a big thanks to Elizabeth for being on the show, certainly, but taking the time to put all this down in an organized way. And Dan, I think in the show notes. Uh, you put a link to where listeners can actually read uh, read what she put together. Yeah, there's lots more in the document she wrote. So if you want more bullet points or more of her narrative about her experience, that's the place to go. You can go to hellophd.com and uh, we'll have the post up there. Well, thanks, Elizabeth, for reaching out to us. And if you also have a question or topic idea that you'd like to discuss with us on the show, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. We love getting your feedback. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, and that's a lot of Miller High Life we could buy with this Patreon money, Dan. <laughs> a lot of Miller High Life. <laughs> especially, especially if we nurse them for three or four hours the way we did when we got together. We got our money's worth. That beer was warm by the time we were done, for sure. It was delicious. And you know what? I felt great. I felt totally great after. I agree with you. Yeah. It, was the right, it was the right choice for us in that moment. Well hydrated. Thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. All right, Dan, this was a pleasure, as always. Uh, Josh, we'll see you next time. I think we're gonna, we are gonna—we got lots of episodes lined up. I think we're going to get a mailbag in in the next couple of weeks. So if you have questions, you can send them to podcast.hellophd.com, and we will uh, try to answer your questions on the air. <laughs> we sure will. See you next time. See you next time. See you next time.